Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Talladega, Alabama. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples in Talladega and around the world. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, will you join me again in the book of Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1 this morning, we'll be reading verses 19 and 20. Once you have it, if you are able, will you stand with me in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word? For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us as we seek now to study your word. Help me as I seek to preach it faithfully and truthfully and carefully. Would you use me now as your mouthpiece? Fill my mouth with your words and not my own. My words, as always, as every single Lord's Day, are insufficient for this task. Your word is all sufficient. And so we rely and depend this morning on your word, and we long this morning to hear from your word. It is our prayer that you would speak to us. Father, as you do, we likewise pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to obey. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I brought with me a, a prop, a little show and tell this morning. Uh, it's this little Bible called the Sportsman's Bible. Uh, it, on the inside cover, uh, I, I bought, purchased this Bible for my grandfather uh, years back and uh, wrote this little inscription on the inside page. It says, Dear Papa, when I saw this Bible, I thought of you immediately. It reminded me of all the times you have said that the closest you felt to God is when it is quiet and you are alone in a deer stand. I hope this gives you some reading material for times like that. It should fit perfectly in that famous black backpack of yours. Happy Father's Day. Love, Robert. He carried this for years uh, in that famous black backpack that he took on every hunting trip he ever went on. Uh, And uh, it it has some worn pages. I think he turned to some favorites uh, repeatedly. Uh, But when he passed away, I made sure to grab it out of that backpack. And now it goes in my backpack every single hunting trip uh, that I take. It's, it's a treasured possession, but it is a reminder, even as I wrote those words in the inscription there on the inside page, about what we are talking about this morning and what we learn about here in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And that is the, what we call by its technical term, general revelation. That is the sense in which we understand and know some things about God because he has revealed them in his creation. If you have spent much time outdoors, whether you are an avid outdoorsman or whether you like to garden or whether you have taken a trip to the Grand Canyon or just like to walk outside and listen to the sound of rainfall on your, uh, on your porch, whatever it may be, you can feel and sense and know some things about God that are absolutely fundamentally true simply by the way he has revealed himself in his 
creation. It is this subject matter that Paul addresses in these two verses that sort of bridge the gap, interestingly enough, between verse 18, which introduced us to the concept of God's wrath and its justice, and verses 21 and following, which describes for us the particular ways in which God may pour out his wrath even in the present, uh, as it foreshadows wrath yet to come uh, in response to sin. This passage, again, focuses on general revelation, but not only general revelation itself, as we'll define it, uh, but its implications for God's wrath, its relationship with God's wrath, and the fact that that wrath is justified, even as we said last week. As we walk through this passage together, we're going to divide it into three parts, considering first the grace of general revelation, secondly the nature of general revelation, and thirdly the accountability of general revelation. It's okay, I'll give those to you again as we make our way through, uh, but if you're following along and taking notes, you can number one, two, and three. We begin with the grace of general revelation. We find this in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. When we read this phrase, what can be known, it refers to things that you are capable of knowing. It is rather straightforward uh, in what is it is expressing. Certain of God's attributes can be known and understood. Now, much about God and about his character and about his nature is far too great for us to know. And even if we know it as pure fact and believe it, even some of those things are too great for our human minds to understand. But what this passage teaches us is that much about him, indeed he has chosen to make undeniably and unquestionably known to us. Not only known, but he continues there, what can be known about God is plain to them. That is not only that these, are, these attributes of God are shown to us, demonstrated to us in his creation, but that he has made them readily apparent. These are things you can know and, and know readily, know easily. These things about God are clear, they're apparent, and they're well known. These things we know so readily about God, we only know, however, because he has shown them to us. That is the central point of verse 19, and that's why we call this the grace of general revelation, because anything that we know about him, we only know because he decided to show it to us. Even these most obvious things, this most obvious knowledge we have about him, what can be known now being plain to us, we still only know Because God graciously chose to reveal these things about himself to us. Friends, you and I cannot figure God out. Your mind as a created being cannot wrap itself around who God is and how great God is and what great things God can do. Not on your own. You don't figure God out. That means that anything you know about God, you only know about him because he decided to reveal it. And here we see God's grace in general revelation. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. The reason these attributes are so plainly known to us as it's put there, what can be known is plain to them. The reason it is so very much plain to us is because God decided to make these attributes of his own character plainly knowable. Maybe the most important phrase in verse 19 is because God. Because God. That's the key phrase in this entire verse. Only because God has made himself known are you able to know him. 
God has revealed himself through both general and special revelation. When we talk about the things God has decided to tell us about himself, there are two general ways he does that. General revelation and special revelation. Now, special revelation, just simply put, to give us a a, a fairly brief definition, uh, includes God's acting in human history, his interaction with his chosen people, the nation of Israel, His special revelation is known most fully in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and in the Bible, his inspired, inerrant word. These are matters, manners of special revelation by which God has specially made us aware of things about him. But the focus of this passage is not on special revelation, it's on what we call general revelation. General revelation is how God has generally revealed himself to all mankind in the things that he has created. Now, as point of fact, you know this to be true, and we need to recognize it to be true if we're going to understand the gift of grace that is general revelation. As point of fact, God's ways are higher than our ways. The scriptures teach us that. The Bible makes that plain to us. In fact, it states it just that plainly. His ways are higher than our ways. Because his ways are higher than our ways, the only way for you and for me to know him is for him to reveal himself. It is only by him making himself known that you and I can know him. And so whether in general revelation or in special revelation, all of God's revelation of himself to us is a gift of grace. Quite frankly, it is more than we deserve and beyond what we deserve, deserve, beyond what God has to do, to tell us about himself. God doesn't have to tell us anything about himself. God doesn't have to reveal anything to us about his character. He is not under some kind of obligation to tell us these aspects about his nature and his character. He does it as a gift of grace. Now we often, and we should, think of special revelation as a gift of grace. The person and work of Jesus Christ, clearly a gift of grace. God's very word, the Bible, his inspired and errant word. Yes, a gift of grace. We oftentimes don't think of general revelation as a gift of grace. We just sort of think of it as there. Sometimes we even just talk about it like this. Like, it's just that plain. It's just general revelation. Just look at the creation. You can see that there is a God. And yes, it is that plain. God has made these things plainly apparent to us. But don't miss the fact that even that plain knowledge of him given to us in creation is given to us. It is a gift. And it is precious to us that God would choose to reveal himself in this way. Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is bigger, stronger, mightier, more glorious, higher than you. The fact that he would let you know anything about him is a gift. That he would make himself known to us at all, in any way, is reason to thank him. It's reason to praise him. It's reason to sing his praises. 
Yes, that we would know him as father, that we would know him as his children, that we would know him through Jesus Christ as in, in this personal relationship is absolutely a cause for us to gather together and sing and worship and magnify him and praise him. But brothers and sisters, even at a more basic level than that, when we sing hymns like all creatures of our God and King, all you have to do is look at the creation to recognize that the fact that you know anything about him is reason to praise him because he has made himself known to us all by his general revelation. It is only by his love, it is only by his grace that he has made himself known to us, his creatures made from dust. Secondly, let's talk about the nature of general revelation. The nature of general revelation. This comes from the first largest part of verse twenty. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Verse 20 now explains for us how God has so graciously revealed himself. He has done it in creation. What is this general revelation? What is this way in which God has graciously chosen to make himself known to all men? These basic characteristics that are unknowable, him now making plainly known to us. Well, he has done it in the created order, in the things that he has made. It's interesting the way that the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts this particularly in verse 20. He says, since the creation of the world. From the time of the creation of the world, in the beginning, God has revealed himself generally in that, in that which he has created. He spoke speaking all things into existence. He told us about himself through those things which he spoke into existence. Brothers and sisters, in that moment of creation, that first moment where the darkness of the world, the nothingness that was, was shattered by the divine statement, let there be light. In that moment, God made a gracious choice to make himself known as creator to his creation. In that moment, God made the gracious choice that his invisible attributes he would make visible in the universe that he would create from nothing. And he has done so, as Paul writes, in the things that have been made. That is, in his creation, in the trees and the sky and the ocean and the mountains. In his creation, he has made himself known. These things that ought to be unknowable about him are now plain to you and to me simply by looking at the created order all around us. Simply by watching the National Geographic channel or taking a walk in the park, you can know some some things about God that he has revealed about himself. Now, we're going to do something time to time throughout our time together this morning, and that is sort of to, to take an aside and explain some things And here is the time for the first of those. We need to explain, even as we explain that God has graciously chosen to reveal his character through his creation, we need to explain and harp on maybe for a moment that creation is not God. Now, this seems rather obvious to you and to me. However, 
It is important that we say that creation reveals God. Creation is not God. And even as we talk about God's omnipresence and God's sovereignty, God's power over all things, his reign and rule over all things, and his omnipresence, that he is everywhere at all times, throughout all time, it is critical to note that all of those things are absolutely distinct from the idea that creation is God or that God is his creation. General revelation is not even close to the same thing as what we call pantheism. That is the belief that the universe is God. It's also not anywhere close to panentheism, which you may be familiar with, is the belief that the universe is part of God. That is that God is big and the universe is part of him. Both of those things are contradictory to the scriptures and contradictory to this truth. This truth of general revelation is that the things God created are not him. These things he created are just that. They are things he created. And he created them to point to him as the creator of those things. It is important that you and I recognize the difference and the distinction. Many facets of God's character are on display in his creation. You may see the power of God in a storm. You may bear witness to the creativity of God and the diversity of species on this planet. You may marvel at the complexity of design that God puts on display in the human body. Maybe you marvel at the beauty of God as you gaze upon a sunrise. You see his order set forth in the unfolding of the seasons. Perhaps you marvel at his providence that he would feed the birds of the air and clothe the lilies of the field. But Paul here lists a particular two characteristics that are seen definitively in creation. And these two, while there is certainly a long list of things you can learn and understand about God, these two are eternally significant. And that's why Paul calls these out and brings these to your attention because the implications of these are eternal and they help us understand why verses 19 and 20 are where they are. Verse 18 has introduced us to the wrath of God and the reality that it will be justly revealed. It is justly revealed now in foreshadowing of of its revelation to come when the wrath of God is poured out on all flesh And then verses 21 through 32 are going to talk to us about what that looks like when it's poured out on the world and on a culture and what sorts of things are worthy of God's wrath and how that happens to a culture. So why this statement of general revelation? Because the fact that these two characteristics of God in particular are evident in his general revelation reminds us that we are accountable because of what we understand in general revelation. Now, we're going to talk about that in the third point. We're going to focus on the accountability of general revelation. But as we think about the nature now of general revelation, we need to focus on the fact that these two characteristics in particular are of utmost importance as they are shown to us in creation. First, we see his eternal power. So you'll notice both of these listed in verse 20 for his invisible invisible attributes. Namely, that is, most importantly, I want to draw your attention to his eternal power and his divine nature. His eternal power is God's ability to accomplish that which he purposes. We've talked about this many times before. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He is great. He is powerful. 
he is able to do that which he will, that which he decides and determines to accomplish. In fact, even the very word that is used here is a word you've become familiar with. This word, dunamis, from the Greek, refers specifically to someone's ability to bring something to pass. And as it relates to God, it it relates to what we call his sovereignty. That is, his ability to will something and bring it to pass. He can do what he wills. He has this divine power. Secondly, he has divine nature. His divine nature refers to God's very nature as God. And As we think about his nature as God, we think about the fact that he is other. He is distinct from us. And he is distinct from all his creation. He is something different entirely as creator, sovereign creator, divine creator. Paul tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here in this passage then that you can know simply by examining the world around you that there is a God, there is a divine, there is a creator, there is one greater than you who is the origin of all of this. And isn't that one of the big questions that always faces the world? Isn't that one of those big philosophical questions that plagues humankind? How did I get here? And if you are honest in your evaluation of the world around you, you are left with only one answer to that question, only one honest answer. That the only way for me to get here is for one far greater than me to put me here. There is one greater than you who is the origin of it all. And his creation beckons you to recognize that he has a divine nature. There is a God, and he is God, and there is no other. Interestingly, the adjective eternal modifies both phrases. His eternal power and, we could say, his eternally divine nature. It's a reminder that God's deity is also eternal. By his very nature as God, there was never a time when he was not. How did we all get here and when did we arrive? Well, when the one who never had a beginning decided to give you a beginning. He has always been, he will always be, because he is utterly distinct from you. He is God. When you look at the wonders of the natural world, you ought to recognize that someone entirely different from you made all of this. Think about this in practical terms. You are because someone else was. You exist because your parents existed before you. and They existed because their parents before them. And they existed because their parents existed before them. And they existed because of their parents before them. And on and on and on through Noah and eventually to Adam and Eve. You are because someone else was. Even Adam was because God decided to form him out of the dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life such that man became a living soul. You are because someone else was, namely God And as you think about your power, or rather powerlessness, you recognize that your will is often frustrated. Now again, you need look no further than the created order to figure this out. Your will is often frustrated. If you planted a garden this spring, there were probably times in the spring and the summer when you needed rain. But you couldn't will it to happen. There were other times that your tomatoes started to split when you needed the rain to stop. You couldn't will that to happen. Your will is often frustrated. 
His never is. You are because someone else was. God is. Remember the very covenant name he gave by which he should be called by his people was I am that I am. That is that God simply, purely is by his divine nature. And he is able to do that which he wills. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is of a divine nature. He is God and he is sovereign over all. And Paul says that you can see both of these realities simply by looking at the world around you. Someone made all of this and that someone is far more powerful than me because he can do what he wills. The Apostle Paul referenced both of these truths in his appeal at Lystra. Recorded for us in Acts 14, verses 15 through 17. If you've got your Bible still open, you can join me just a little to the left if you're still in Romans. Acts chapter 14, verses 15 through 17 records for us Paul's appeal. Here's the appeal he made. Men, why are you doing these things? This is when the people of Lystra tried to worship him and his companions as gods. Why are you doing these things, Paul asks. We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. How are they to recognize this living God? How are they to know him? How can they see him? How can they be aware of him? A living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That is, you should turn to this living God who you know exists simply by looking at the dirt and the water. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. How can you know he exists simply by looking at the created order around you? And if that does not leave you with no doubt remaining, just look at the fact that it rained and your crops grew. That didn't happen because you did it, it happened because he did it. Here Paul makes the appeal that even though the Gentiles may not have had the Old Testament and the law and the prophets, still they had general revelation. By that general revelation, they should have been able to see, one, that God exists, and two, that he is powerful. He exists because he is the living God who made all things, and secondly, he is powerful because he provided rain and a harvest. Paul makes this appeal to both of these attributes. The same is true for you and for me. It's true of the people at Lystra. It was true in Paul's audience in Rome. It's true for you and me as well. In creation, you and I can see that God is powerful to do whatever he wills and that he is distinct from me and that he is God. Again, you don't have to look far to see that this is reality. You can see the efficacy of general revelation simply by talking to people. How many people do you know who are not professing Christians who would still readily agree with the statement, I believe in God? Many would certainly say, especially in our culture here in the southeastern United States, well, sure, I believe in God. And why why would they say such a thing? Well, either it's to get you off of their back because they don't want to have the conversation you're seeking to have with them as you try to bear witness of the gospel to them. Or, what is often the case, they can plainly see in general, general revelation that there is a God, that they're not him, 
that he is powerful and they are not. So even if they are not followers of Jesus Christ, still many will say, well, I believe in God. The sad reality is that often for them it stays there, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Let's talk about you personally. When you take a walk in the park, you're sitting in a deer stand, when you're gazing at the sunrise, at the beginning of a day at the beach, What are some things that you know to be true? You know that there is a God and you are not him. You know that he is powerful and you are powerless. And then you must be brought very quickly to some eternal implications of these facts. He deserves to be worshipped and I have not worshipped him as he deserves. He deserves to be obeyed, and I have not obeyed him as he demands. I have treated myself rather like God instead of acknowledging that he is God. And that, friends, is eternal treason. This brings to bear, whether you like it or not, the reality that you are in desperate need of a Savior. Watch a sunrise. See that there is a God. See that he is powerful. But be brought quickly to the recognition that there is a God and you have sinned against him. He is powerful and must judge you for your rebellion against him. And recognize that your only hope is to be saved by someone because you cannot save yourself from him. That leads us to our third point this morning, and that is the accountability of general revelation. The accountability of general revelation. Please don't miss the tail end of verse 20. It is the moment where all of these facts about general revelation come face to face with the reality of verse 18 and the promises of verses 21 through 32. So, they are without excuse. The word so, this Greek word of transition in the middle of the verse between these phrases is ace. It points to a distinctive purpose or result. I remember when my dad was on the phone, his favorite word was so. A lot of people say um. I say um a lot. We call these audible pauses in in public speaking. You may have been called out for a few of those. I always was when giving a public speech in school. Audible pauses. My dad's favorite audible pause was so. If he was on the phone, he would say so. You know, such and such, such and such. How's that going? This is great. You know, we're doing such and such. So our plans for the afternoon are to, you know, go have a, a picnic with the neighbors. So which is like the next thing he said. This is not just an empty word because Paul doesn't know what else to write. So, they're without excuse. No, it's a word that points to something. It's a word that indicates that the distinct purpose of the rest of what I've said is coming. 
I have just told you that you can recognize, Paul is writing, that there is a God and that he is powerful. These divine attributes of both his eternal existence as divine and his eternal power as sovereign are clearly seen in creation. You don't have to look far at all because God has graciously chosen to show you and me that he is God and he is powerful simply by the things he has created. And that has significant and eternal implications that you, O man, are without experience. Excuse. Without excuse for what? Without excuse for what verse 18 implies. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You have no excuse for your ungodliness. No excuse for your stance of rebellion against Him because even creation teaches you He is God and you are not. You have no excuse for, his un, for your unrighteousness. Because even creation teaches you that God is powerful. And so to rebel against Him means wrath is coming. You have no excuse for your suppression of the truth. Because God has graciously chosen to reveal truth about Himself even in His creation. You have no excuse. Wrath is coming. And you will not be able to stand before his throne one day and say, I didn't know any better. I didn't know. I didn't realize there was a God. I didn't realize I was disobeying him. No one ever told me. Creation tells you. You have no excuse. There is significance in this fact of God's general revelation and this central point Paul is making in this passage. You have no excuse. Even the opening word of the section in verse 19, that word for begins this verse. It's a, it's a unique compound word in the Greek that roughly translates on account of and because. You might read this, for what can be no, or, or, or rather, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth on account of and because of this, that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are, you are, without excuse when that wrath comes. Both of these words of transition point to a very distinct, very purposeful statement. You and I are both responsible and accountable for our sinful rejection of God. We are responsible and accountable for disobeying Him. And we are responsible and accountable for suppressing the truth about Him. We have no excuse for not recognizing who He is and that He deserves to be obeyed. None. You see, friends, this gift of grace that is divine revelation, general revelation, also means that you are accountable. That you have no excuse for your sinful rebellion against Him. And that you will one day be held to account because you knew enough to know better. Who is Paul talking to or about? He uses the word they, so they are without excuse. Who's that they? Maybe I can skirt around that and that doesn't mean me. No, the word they refers to the exact same group as verse 18. Namely, all men. It is a universal truth that is explained here. All people can look at creation and see the character of God there reflected because he chose to reveal it there. 
All men have suppressed the truth about God that all men see plainly revealed in His creation. Anyone who rebels against God, rejects God, disobeys God, and suppresses the truth about God is doing precisely that. They are suppressing the truth because the truth is plainly known to you in creation. As much as the suppression of truth and unrighteousness was and is the universal condition, so too is this accountability. Every human being is accountable before God because of this general revelation. Every single person is condemned apart from Christ because all of us have suppressed the truth about God which can be clearly perceived in the created order around us. Now I told you, I warned you, maybe might be the better word, that we were going to take a couple of asides and here I want to do take a, another two of those. I want to talk first to you about a a thing that sometimes we call the age of accountability. I think it comes to bear on this passage, or rather this passage comes to bear on that that way of thinking. And so I want to take a few moments to, to talk to you about what we call the age of accountability, what that means, whether or not we have a biblical defense for it, all of those sorts of things. If you're taking notes, you can sort of turn the turn the page or you know make a box out to the side. Here you go. I believe in an age of accountability of sorts. Now, I cannot speak definitively here, but I want to speak personally and a bit pastorally on an issue that, again, I think comes to bear from this passage. I do not believe that there is a definable numeric age of accountability, but I do believe that there is a point at which Human beings have the cognitive ability to perceive and understand these truths that we have talked about this morning. There's a moment in their lives when they begin to look at the created order around them and see these truths, that there is a God, that I am not Him, that He is powerful, and I am not, and have sinned against Him. There is a moment in time for people cognitively to begin to perceive those things and understand those truths about God from the world around them. Now let me back up that initial argument because I think it's important just by giving you a practical illustration. My brother's not here. He's not listening because we're not live. And I'll tell him not to listen to the recording, which he probably wouldn't do anyway. I'm going to tell a story about him. And it's embarrassing. So next time he's here, don't tell him I told you. When I was growing up, uh, every year we would spend 10 days in uh, middle south Georgia at a, at a place called Indian Springs Holiness Camp Meeting. It was a Holiness Wesleyan camp meeting, interestingly enough, a good Baptist family down there amongst all those Wesleyans. Uh, and we would spend 10 days uh, sitting outside in the Georgia summer heat there in early August, listening to preaching all day, every day. Now, the thing about holiness Wesleyans is that they they have some requirements uh, for decorum. And and one of those is uh, that when you went into what they called the outdoor tabernacle, where all the main preaching sessions were held, uh, you, you needed to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the preaching event and the worship that was going to go on there. And so men were required to wear slacks and shirt and ties, no blue jeans or tennis shoes or uh, just plain collared shirts without ties allowed in the outdoor tabernacle. And ladies had to wear ankle length. Uh, dresses. It was everybody had to dress up in order to go in the Georgia summer heat outside in August, dressed up. There was also this manner of decorum that was just generally expected that most people would conduct themselves in a manner befitting such a solemn ten days 
even in the lodging arrangements. And the lodging arrangements was this really, really old multi-story hotel that had some window units if you paid enough to get one of those rooms, and otherwise you were just fanning yourself the entire time, old rickety wooden floors. But the other thing that this old, old hotel had was a community bathroom. And that meant that if you needed to bathe, you would go to the community bath to do so, and you would wait your turn and there uh, go in. My brother, when he was young, took great delight in the squeals and screams that he would get when just after my father had helped him prepare for his shower, he would wiggle away and sprint down the hallways of the hotel wearing absolutely nothing. And you can imagine the response of all of these holiness Wesleyans looking at this little boy running as fast as he could through all of the hallways, up and down the staircases, inside, outside, everywhere he could go until my dad could catch him and throw him in the shower and bathe him and get him back to the room. But there came a year when he just didn't do that anymore. There came a year when all of a sudden it wasn't, it wasn't the delight and the highlight of his trip. In fact, to do so would have been rather embarrassing. Because he recognized some things about himself. All of a sudden, it wasn't funny. It was shameful to be naked in front of all of these people. You know, if you have raised small children, you find this also to be true in their own lives. That they are unashamed completely until they reach a certain age. And all of a sudden, they are ashamed to be naked. I say all that to say this. What was the very first thing that Adam and Eve recognized about themselves when they sinned and sin entered into the world? They were naked and ashamed. I don't know that it is proof positive, but I think it is an interesting parallel to the argument that there comes an age, a time in a person's life when cognitively they are able to perceive from the world around them that they are not God, they are sinful people. I think perhaps it often corresponds with those other recognitions about themselves. I say all of that to say this about an age of accountability. Here in this passage we learn that the created order allows us by God's grace to perceive some things about God. And to perceive in response some things about ourselves. And I think that if verses 19 and 20 teach us... That because perceiving these things from creation around you means that you are without excuse, I think personally it to be the case, or at least the case can be made, that one who is yet unable to perceive these things because of their age or their cognitive capacity is with excuse. If, if you believe in an age of accountability, this is where I think you have the strongest biblical argument. That's where mine would come from. We've spoken on that. If you've got questions about it, come see me Monday and we'll talk our way through it. Again, I can't speak definitively here, but I think it to be rather helpful as we encounter those issues that this passage, I believe, comes to bear. Now, let me take another aside. And for this, I'll bring back my uh, illustrative uh, Bible from earlier. I want to speak to you, brothers, for a few moments, just to the men for a minute. Bow season has opened, and rifle season is soon to follow. And if you are like me, one of your favorite places to be is in the deer stand, in the woods. I learned from my grandfather that you can feel quite close to the Lord in those quiet times in a deer stand. Maybe you like to hunt deer, maybe you like to hunt something else, but hunting is your thing. 
I must remind you that the final phrase of verse 20 should be frightening for you and for me. I have heard many, many brothers who I love dearly say these same sorts of things as an excuse to be in the stand instead of in the pew on Sunday morning. I must remind you that the end of verse 20 teaches us that what nature reveals about God is enough to condemn you, not enough to save you. And so if you are out in the woods and you say, here I see that there is a God, you should also see that you are not Him. And if you can say, here I can see God's order and God's power revealed, you ought also very quickly to say, I can see that I have transgressed against Him. So brothers, when the Lord's Day comes, take your Bible and get yourself to church. Because what you know about Him from the deer stand is plenty to condemn you and not enough to save you. This Bible was always in that famous black backpack that went on every hunting trip my grandfather always went on. But this Bible was left in that backpack and the backpack was left at home on the Lord's Day because Papa was at church. The Lord with whom he communed in the deer stand was worthy of worship. And so there was no Sunday hunting allowed at his house. We were to be with the saints in worship because what can be known about God is plainly revealed in the things he has created and it reminds us that we are without excuse and we need a Savior whom we arrive here to worship. The general revelation in creation serves as sufficient reason for your condemnation in sin. That's why verses 19 and 20 appear between verse 18 and verse 21. The creation is a testimony against you that God is just in condemning you for your sins. You will not be able to stand before God's throne one day and say, He never told me He existed nor will you be able to stand before his throne one day and say, you never told me I was supposed to obey you. These things are plainly seen in the things that he has made. God has made it plain, and we have rebelled. We have greatly rebelled. We deserve God's wrath, and we have no excuse This dispels with the myth of what some people sometimes call the innocent guy in Africa who just didn't know any better. What's God going to do about him? This passage reminds us that there is no such thing as an innocent guy who never heard. Creation screams, there is a God and you are not him. He is powerful and you have rebelled against him. 
And you deserve condemnation. We all know better. Yet we have all sinned against God. And so we are accountable. Friend, you have no excuse for your wicked rebellion against God. You and me especially. Because we don't just have general revelation. It's enough. But you have special revelation too. You can take it home and read it for yourself. You will be held to account. And your only hope is Jesus. You and I cannot shrug off accountability for our sins. We cannot say we did not know any better. We will be held to account. And the only hope to be saved from the sins for which we are eternally guilty is Jesus, who took our place and our punishment and bore the wrath we deserved on a cross that we might be set free, saved, ransomed, forgiven. This also means, Christian, you and I must preach the gospel. There is no one on this planet who has an excuse. Everyone is condemned. And their only hope is the gospel. We have to tell them. We have to feel that urgency. We have to live with that urgency. We have to go with that urgency, whether to our neighbors or the nations. We have to go and tell them. No one has an excuse. Everyone needs Jesus. He is their only hope. They know enough to recognize God. They know enough to know that their sins against Him are deserving of wrath. They know enough to recognize their need for a Savior. So we have to tell them. We have to tell them that a Savior has come and that He is their only hope. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the grace of general revelation. We are able to know some things about You that are plainly seen because you have graciously chosen to reveal them in creation. But Father, quickly on the heels of that thankfulness comes this solemn reminder that what we can know plainly through creation makes us all without excuse for our rebellion against you. And our only hope to be saved from the consequences of our rebellion is Jesus. So it is our prayer this morning that if there be anyone under the sound of my voice who does not know him, who has not cried out to Jesus for forgiveness, that by the gracious work of your Holy Spirit, even this morning, you would fix their eyes upon him. Father, it is likewise our prayer together this morning that for those of us who have turned our eyes upon Christ as Savior, you would motivate us to go and to tell a world in need of a Savior and without any excuse for their sin that there is a Savior. His name is Jesus. He gave His life on a cross for them and rose again after dying in their place 
victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave so that they could be set free and have the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that comes with it. Send us out. Motivate us to go. Fill us with an urgency of the need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.